injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. No man can give anybody his freedom. Man is born free. You may enslave a man after he is born free. You always told me it takes time. How much time do you want for your progress? We have to go to the root. We have to go to the cause. Dealing with the condition itself is not enough. No, no. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond Black, our journey to active allyship. Today, I have a very special guest with me, Amanda. Um, welcome, Hi. Amanda. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you Thank off. Thank you. Yeah. So That's okay. <laughs> I have, I wrote like a little intro. However, I would <laughs> like to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to the it to the listeners um if you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself yeah um so i'm amanda i'm a full-time uh, phd student um i am currently writing my dissertation my two areas are uh feminist theory intersectional feminism and uh ancient political theory or political philosophy um i am also part-time content creator I spend a lot of time making content about plants, beauty, lifestyle, uh, some anti-racism content, some content about like health advocacy, mental health advocacy. Uh, I have pets. I like to keep it really real on social media. Um, I'm really not into like social media is a highlight reel. I try to show uh some of the like real and not so pretty moments too and something about me that's not online i've gotten really into watercolor painting and mm. it's something that i'm not like i'm making a conscious effort not to monetize it so that it can stay just like a hobby that i do for me that's good for just like de-stressing and that I don't feel pressure to be good at or do quickly or anything. Wow. So that's my, that's my latest hobby. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so nice. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, um, my mom, my mom's really, she's a very good, um, she's very good at water painting. She's a, she's a very good artist. And my grandma was also, she loved it. And I am not great at water painting, though I would love to be. So that, that's really cool. I'm that's very nice. And I love that you're Thanks. keeping it for yourself. Love that. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, today on the episode, um, I have Amanda on to talk about healthcare here in Canada. <laughs> I think this will be uh, an interesting episode especially if we have any international listeners I think uh, there's a very romanticized idea of what healthcare in Canada looks like and um, what the reality of healthcare in Canada is actually might uh, startle people shock people I don't know to, you'll, Absolutely. You'll hear, yeah. What the reality? We get this reputation 
we get this reputation as this land of free healthcare, universal healthcare, and just being really, really nice. And I think that the the really, really nice curtain has been peeled back a little bit as some of the truth of Canada's genocidal past has been uh, covered more in the media mm -hmm. um, and is undeniably being uh, shown to us every day and how Indigenous peoples have been treated. Mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully this episode sheds light on the healthcare, universal healthcare component of our reputation as Canadians. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like universal healthcare, I'd like to start off with like the audacity Canada has uh, at calling our healthcare system universal. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> In what universe is this universal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On, uh, so with that, let me, let's start with like, um, universal healthcare by definition is supposed to be all encompassing. Like it's supposed to cover all aspects of healthcare, including mental health, dental, eye care. And yet what we have, I mean, our system's also a little, uh, it's, so in Canada, we have provinces and territories and we don't have a nationwide healthcare system. It varies from province and territory. Um, so it's different. And today, uh, because we both live in the same province, which is Ontario, um, we will be speaking about what's happening or our system here. Uh, that we are both familiar with. Um, so don't even know what's going on and <laughs> the other, how it, it's going in the other areas of Canada. But what yeah. we've got here in this area um, is what we'll be speaking to today, uh, which is the uh, another wild part of it that we're calling it universal healthcare in Canada because it's not even the same across the entire country. So that's, yeah, the first flaw in our universal healthcare system. We've got this combination of public and private uh, thing going on. Some things are publicly funded and some things are privately funded. So that means you either pay out of pocket or if you have insurance, it could be covered under insurance depending on your policy. That also varies uh, wildly. Yeah. And then dental and eye care is not covered. Yep. Yeah. Um, pharmacare, mm -hmm. drugs, you go to the pharmacy. Uh, so, so, so you backtrack, so you go to the doctor and <laughs> that's free, right? Mm -hmm. That's covered by the province, but then you, the doctor prescribes you medication, you go to the pharmacy and you have to pay and your insurance may cover all of it, a portion of it, none of it. Some insurance companies will deny, uh, a particular drug, uh, we'll get more into insurance <laughs> issues later, I believe, yeah. but, uh, what else doesn't it cover? Every so often I'll be, my doctor will recommend a test that is not covered, like a blood test. So yes. I had to have a vitamin D blood test, which uh, I actually believe that darker skinned people of color, I believe, I was told by a doctor that darker skinned people of color don't need more sunlight to produce yes. vitamin we, yes, D. Yes, that is accurate. And 
my doctor suggested that I have a vitamin D test mm-hmm. and I had to pay a hundred dollars out of pocket for this test. Hmm. It wasn't covered by provincial health care. Did your doctor provide you with a requisition? Yeah. And yeah. it wasn't covered? No, I went to, I went to the lab and it was not covered. And it was like the normal lab that I go to for other health, other blood tests that okay. are covered. Um, and I was found to be severely deficient in vitamin D, <laughs> okay. but, uh, yeah, it just, it speaks to some of the inequality, uh, of the system. Can you think of anything else that's not covered? I think that's a pretty good picture. Certain mental health services, like there are ways of getting around it. However, most of them are not straight up, just not covered. However, if you can find a GP psychotherapist that does not have an excessive wait list, that can be covered. Um, And wait lists are astronomically long. Um, I was told recently that a wait list for a psychiatrist is nine to 12 months in our province, Mm -hmm. uh, which when you think of like mental health can sometimes be an acute difficulty. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, it can be chronic, but it can also be like very severe at a particular point in time and Mm -hmm. a matter of life quality or life and death. So that's definitely a problem as well. So there's that. Yeah. I mean, physio not covered unless it's through the hospital. Uh, I mean, there are, there are variations. It again, depends how you get in for it. Um, what it's for, who recommended it, what clinic you're going to be seen at for how long it it varies. Um, but it's not straightforward. Um, if your physio will be covered, uh, massage for chronic pain is not covered. Um, I, like, um, nutritionists and dietitians aren't covered unless again, it's through the hospital or certain programs for very specific things. And the time that you see them might be like, it could be just a single session, which if it's something like uh, you, you know, for disordered eating, you might need it for more than a single session. Yeah. There's, there's actually quite, there, there's actually a lot more that isn't covered that you would think would be covered. Um, then we could keep going on, um, (laughs) things that it does cover like routine checkups. If you have like a sore throat, you could go see a doctor, Yep. Surgeries, uh, which is great. Yes. Cancer treatments, treatments. A lot of uh, maternal care, like mm-hmm. pregnancy, delivery, OBGYN mm-hmm. care yeah. is included. So you're not going to get a bill after you bring your baby home. Um, Hospital stay. Yes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cover ambulance no. rides. No, it does not. Yeah, so that's that's the brief intro. I mean, again, 
like if you, you, you start nitpicking at like what's covered what's not covered it's super complex and a lot of times you can't even figure it out until you're actually in the situation and you're in the moment and you're like oh this thing that you would expect that you're like in the middle of a crisis and experiencing life and you're like oh this thing that I the service that I absolutely need you're telling me is not covered and I have zero money to pay for it great um or is covered and I'm going to have to be on a wait list for two years and by then I probably won't need it or the problem will be so bad I may like it just won't even be useful by then um things like that or if it's covered but you need a family doctor like a family doctor who you have following you like following your case and caring for you to write a like letter or requisition but you don't have a family doctor and we have a family doctor shortage and there's years long wait lists for family doctors. Yeah. Um, so there's all sorts of uh, issues with accessibility and how it plays out in reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so I've personally been very fortunate that I had a phenomenal family doctor who also, I mean, that's another issue with our, so in Ontario, we have this, uh, our system's called OHIP, and I had this phenomenal family doctor that didn't entirely follow the OHIP guidelines, which was to her own detriment and mental health because she was always overworked and didn't do the one issue per visit, 15 minute, get out of here rule which was great for me. However, for her and her workload didn't help at all. All that long-winded way of saying I had a really great family doctor for my entire life until last summer when they retired. So my question for you is, do you have a family doctor right now? Are you one of the lucky ones who currently has a family doc? I am. Um, I got a family doctor recently, like I want to say in the last year, um, I had had a family doctor from birth, uh, mm-hmm. who was located in the GTA when I lived in Toronto. Um, that's where I was born and grew up. And, uh, when I moved to Ottawa, obviously no longer had access to my family doctor. Right. Um, but I wasn't sure where I would end up, where I would settle. So I kind of didn't get a family doctor in Ottawa for quite a while. And then I realized like, no, I'm staying here for a while. So I'm, I better get Mm -hmm. a family doctor. And, uh, my like first family doctor that I had had in Toronto was not the best, um, misdiagnosed me for many years, which we'll get to, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then I had a hard time finding a family doctor. Um, there's this thing called healthcare connect where you can get put on the, like a wait list for when a family doctor in your area becomes available and they'll call you. And, uh, I had that happen and the doctor was actually, uh, not great. Uh, and just, just not a fit for me. Mm-hmm. And then I had to do the whole search all over again. And thankfully found a doctor who's really great now. She's, she's wonderful. And I'm very, very lucky. I'm assuming you've had other family docs in your life before, because you had one in the GTA. Um, yeah. And then 
you had to you've had to change so and you've had better ones worse ones like yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. they're not they're not all created the same and no no um I know for some people like you the shortage is so dire that some people just like stick with a terrible doctor for so long yep. because the, there is just no other choice there's just yeah there is no choice at this point the shortage is that bad like basically we're at the point where it's like you take what you can get like a doctor is better than no doctor in some situations exactly. when i, I um, okay some of the things that make doctors a little bit worse than others is their ability to handle race and the the complexities of uh, dealing with patients who are not white so i my question one was maybe the first time you uh experienced that with a doctor yeah yeah um so I, I can't definitely say that I experienced mm -hmm. racism with a family doctor, but yeah. I uh, have chronic mental and physical health conditions that require that I see specialists. So I definitely think that I've experienced racism from specialists that I've seen. And that's just the nature of it. Racism is insidious. It's not easy to identify and people of color are like socialized to doubt our intuitions of mm -hmm. okay this is racism in this particular situation and then this voice tells me in my head like are you sure maybe they were just having a bad day and maybe, yeah i don't know maybe that's just me um but we also you. know <laughs> good I'm, I'm i'm glad i'm yeah. not alone but terrible that we have to go yeah. through that and we also know that like it tends to intersect with other forms of oppression such as mm -hmm. fat phobia so um, I have been plus size in my life and I saw a specialist, this was a couple of years ago. I saw a specialist for my chronic illness who basically berated me for being obese, mm -hmm. told me that losing weight was my only treatment option. Um, she treated me like I wasn't even a person. Okay. Um, yeah. Good. I don't think she ever even spoke to me. It was like she was speaking to herself or to the room about me. It was mm. like I was like a collection of symptoms and like she would look at my skin and like it's a skin condition that I have and she would like make comments that were not uh, necessary or sensitive. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I just remember crying after that appointment. I, was, I had class afterwards and I couldn't go to class. I had to go straight home. Yeah. And at the time I thought it was because I was a sensitive person and I am a sensitive person and that's maybe partly true, but I definitely think that part of it was that she maybe had a lack of empathy for me because of racism, mm -hmm. because uh, there's all these this evidence that shows that white uh, healthcare practitioners have trouble empathizing with their patients of color and particularly darker skinned patients because familiarity uh, and familiarity with people's faces and facial features and ability to tell pain on a person's face is impacted by your race and the race of the person you're interacting with. So yeah, I, I, I definitely think that that would, I would qualify that as my first experience with racism. How about you? Uh, when was the first time you experienced racism in the medical system? Yeah, I mean, so, okay, I mean, technically, technically, the first experience I had was when I was born, although I was not 
actually aware because I was fresh out of the womb. However, when I was born, I was not breathing on my own. Like I, it, there, there were, like I was having issues and my mother could see it and she was the only one who was really noticing it. And my mom was also, she's also a doctor. And she was going, my baby's not breathing properly. There's something not right. And the doctor looked and was like, they're fine. The baby's fine. And mom's like, no, this, the baby is not fine. Like there's something not right here. And were, like the doctor just like wouldn't listen. And then my mom, one of my mom's best friends, who also was a doctor, like looked and was like, okay, well, like I'm not personally seeing it. However, can you just look at the baby, like do something, like take a look, like, you know, the, the mother is saying there's something wrong. And like, also like when you go through med school, like you're taught to like, listen to the mother because mothers like have instincts about their children that, Mm -hmm. um, like that just can't be there's nothing comparable to it. You're just, you're supposed to like listen to a mother's intuition. And so the doctor was like, fine, whatever. And when they ran the tests, what do you know? I was actually not breathing and it was a critical condition. And then I ended up spending, I don't remember how long, I don't know how long it was in the ICU and not breathing. And it was actually to the point where they were like, don't like, you know, in a polite way was like, oh, this baby might not actually make it. Wow. Um, and you know, it's the thing where you look for markers, like things like, uh, cheek color and things, all these markers on infants that wouldn't show up on my skin necessarily. Yep. So that's technically the first time I was just an infant. Um, my first time where I was cognizant of what was happening was, I was in university. This was before I had become sexually active. Um, and I was having some uh, lesions, ulcer, things were happening on Mahuha that I was unfamiliar with. And they were itchy and painful and sore. And I was like, this is not normal. And I went to a walk-in clinic and I was like, what is going on here? And the doctor kept being like, this looks like herpes. I think it's herpes. And I was like, okay, that's really great because I'm also scared it's herpes. However, I have never been sexually active. There is not a person who has gone down there yet. So, mm-hmm. and from my knowledge, like you're, you're, you're supposed, there's supposed to be some kind of contact for that to, for it to be herpes. And the doctor kind of, this, it's also important. This was a white doctor um, that was examining my nether regions and refused to believe me when I was saying that I had never been sexually active at this point and would say things like well for cultural reasons often people lie because they don't want their family to find out there are religious and cultural reasons that people lie I have to treat it as if you might be lying to me oh my god and refused so tested for herpes however refused to uh, investigate any other avenue and so the test came back and it was negative and then the doctor when I had to go back for the result like you see the doctor went "Mm, it might be dormant and I'm like okay but what do you mean it might be dormant like it's act like there's something going on like that's not dormant it wouldn't Mm -hmm. be dormant refused to think that it was anything other than herpes 
And it wasn't until I returned home in the summer and went to my actual family doctor who was like, okay, I'm not going to lie to you. This does look like herpes. However, I trust you when you tell me this, uh, that you've never been sexually active. So let's think of what else it could be. Um, It turns out that it was aggressive yeast infections, which was causing the like itchy and the scratching, which was causing the lesions. And I just have a very, very sensitive nether regions that reacts to absolutely everything, which Mm -hmm. is, and then once I changed my diet and like behaviors and like, I have to have, like, I'm very particular about the underwear I wear and like clothing I wear, like how things fit so that like all these different things. So once I changed my behaviors and eating patterns, that problem stopped happening. But the walk-in doctor just absolutely refused to believe that it was anything else. Mm -hmm. And would say to me for cultural and religious reasons. Yeah. So she just, this doctor just came right out and said. Yes. For cultural and religious reasons, not knowing me, my culture, my religion, which, uh, you know, I was like, cool, my religion, my agnostic, my a like non-religious self, my culture, my French Canadian white heritage on the one side and uh, my Caribbean on the other, like, what? Like, wh- what, like, wow. what are you, what assumptions are you making here? Wow. Yes. So that was (laughs) awful. That was my first experience with like very, very blatantly racist medical, this doctor who was just very overtly racist. Yeah. And I think, I think that speaks to that's the racism from medical care providers can be overt. Like it can be like, like with that doctor, they just came out right out and said it. Um, or it could be covert and mm-hmm. one's not worse than the other. I think I've experienced more covert racism from medical healthcare practitioners, but yeah, shows up in different ways. Both quite sinister. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you find that it's something you experience often? Um, when I was first trying to find healthcare providers, uh, for my like mental and physical health conditions. Yes. And it was to the point where I would, I still practice what I'm going to say when I'm, when I go to the doctor, even though I have now found healthcare providers, specialists who are great. And like my family doctor, uh, listens to me. I still like rehearse what I'm going to say before I go. Not like I'm lying, but I like practice telling my own experiences because I get really nervous when I go to any mm-hmm. kind of medical setting Yeah, because it's like I am on, on guard for yeah. some kind of someone not to believe me, someone to say something uh, that really like is inappropriate or hurtful. Um, yeah. So it, it definitely has lasting impacts, even though I don't, I wouldn't say that I experience it often anymore. So yes. So you've mentioned now that you have a chronic condition. Um, and so I would like, I would imagine that that took some time to figure out what was going on and you've been very open with your followers about, you know, 
you're or you are in general like you said you like to keep it raw and uh real and open so do you want to maybe touch on that like uh, and then we can get into because I imagine the road to diagnosis was probably difficult yes yeah um for my physical health in particular um so in terms of physical health conditions I have a a chronic illness called hydrodenitis superativa, um, HS for short. So HS is a chronic inflammatory autoimmune disease, uh, and it's rare and deeply understudied, tends to run in families, tends to impact um, larger people more, people who smoke more. Um, and what it, it, what it is, is it results in painful boils on the skin. Mm. Um, so like between my legs, uh, under my arms and at its very worst, uh, there were days where I couldn't walk because of the pain. Uh, I've had to go to the emergency room because of pain. Um, and I have uh, stage one, so it's the, the mildest form. Wow. I'm, I'm very lucky that I have a dermatologist now who treats me like a whole human being mm-hmm. and um, respects me and gives me various treatment options and allows me to have agency and choose uh, and, and ask about things, ask questions. So that, but it, it took a while to get here. Yeah. Um, so that's my physical health. Um, in terms of mental health, I have depression and anxiety. So major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. I've lived with those most of my life. Um, I was very lucky that when I was in like first year of undergrad, I was referred to a psychiatrist who was wonderful and was my, my, was my psychiatrist up until this year. And so I've been very, very lucky. Psychiatry is covered by OHIP. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've been very, very lucky that I've had access to help for my mental health. Yeah. Um, in terms of the road to diagnosis for my physical health, I was misdiagnosed, as I mentioned, by my family doctor for 10 years. Um, I was told that it was just acne or um, like abscesses. Um, so I was eventually sent to a surgeon uh, to like surgically remove the site of a flare-up that had been persisting for quite some time. And it was the surgeon who looked at me and said, okay, I could operate, but this is a chronic illness. It's called hydrogenitis superativa. Um, It's chronic. It will come back either there or in another spot. And your best bet is to be referred to a dermatologist. So he referred me to a dermatologist um, who I didn't like their bedside manner. I wouldn't characterize anything uh, as racism. although maybe it was covert, but I Mm -hmm. I didn't detect it in that situation. So then I got another referral to another dermatologist, uh, which was the, the kind of bad experience that I mentioned earlier. I'm on my third dermatologist now and they are amazing. Um, so that was kind of my, uh, my road to diagnosis. But after the second dermatologist, that bad experience, I was without a dermatologist for several years because I was like okay if I have to like play Russian roulette like walking into some new specialist's office and see if they're going to treat me like a person I'm not going to play I'm just gonna be untreated and handle the flares on my own and 
uh, it was a walk-in clinic doctor at my school who's a person of color who uh, like kind of asked me, are you sure you don't want me to, I was seeing her for something else. And she was like, are you sure you don't want me to write a referral to a dermatologist? And eventually I was like, okay, I'll give it a try. And I'm so glad that I did because I found my dermatologist now and I'm on medication and it's really well managed. And my quality of life is significantly better. Part of that is that I lost weight in order for doctors to take me seriously and to uh, look at me and say, okay, like, you're no, you've lost weight and you still have this disease, which is messed up in and of itself that I had to change my body in order to be taken seriously. And I'm not sure whether it was the losing weight that allowed me to be taken seriously by my current doctor who gave me medication that it maybe combined with the losing weight has made it so that I have like three or four flares a year. Whereas before I had flares constantly. So I think that also speaks to the insidious nature of racism and fat phobia and just Mm -hmm. the general prejudice in, in the medical system and how that plays out and how it's very hard to separate out and say, okay, this was racism and to, Mm -hmm. to, to determine causation, especially when like you're in pain and you're, you just really want relief from the pain, like some kind of improvement in quality of life. So you're trying all sorts of things. You're switching providers. You're trying different treatments. What worked? Not sure. And I mean, another, another thing to point out that most studies, especially on skin have been done on white males, which isn't going to help like any kind of uh, diagnosis on skin. Like Absolutely. I've been to the emergency room um, for a flare and in assessing the severity of a skin infection, um, some kind of inflammation, uh, the triage nurse always asks, is it red? And I was in so much pain. Um, I was experiencing intrusive uh, thoughts about ending my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, Advil wasn't helping talent. I I'd tried everything and it had been several days at that point. This was my last resort mm-hmm. and I was in so much pain. She asked, uh, is it, is the site red? And I just answered, I'm black. Like, yeah. I, my skin doesn't like, get red to the extent that a very fair person would yeah. in the same circumstance. So this is not a fair assessment. And this is medical textbooks, right? This is job training. This is what they're taught to ask at the triage station. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're like, why are you asking me? It's an irrelevant question in this situation. You're asking me something that like my skin is not going to do. It's just never going to do what you're expecting. expecting, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like that, you know, it's like that thing when I was the in- an infant and they're looking for the signs of an infant not breathing. Yeah. Looking for the skin to go blue. It's like, my skin's not going to go blue. No. No. Like, look for a different sign. <laughs> or yeah. I don't know, maybe listen to the mother who just had the baby inside for nine months. 
you, that might be your first thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's things like that. It's like, you got to find other, other ways to teach people other cues, you know, um, looking at my skin and telling me it's herpes when could be something else it was something else like like I had that I get um it's not eczema I've I've been so used to calling it calling it eczema I saw one dermatologist dermatologist said it was eczema turns out it was psoriasis which given the whole like the dermatologist didn't assess me as a whole person in the context of everything that I was going on in my life given everything that was going on in my life, psoriasis made way more sense because of the link it has to um, chronic stress and anti uh, use of antidepressants, which I have been on since 2014. Like uh, the way it looked, the, but again, when you're looking at something, you're expecting, you. they look at it thinking it's going to look one way because they're used to seeing it. They've studied it on white yep. skin yeah um, yeah incredible it, you know it's things like that and it takes so much longer for things to be diagnosed on black skin yep um and then and then there's part of it is you know visually don't know what you're looking at or for and then, and then there's also that I forget the word you but that covert you know it's that you're not really listening, whether they realize it or not. Yep. Um, and there's also a thing in medicine where female pain isn't taken as seriously either. Yes. So there's that as well. And yeah. So um, there's, there's, and there's it's, all, yeah. It's really ironic because so much of medical history progress or medical discoveries have been made through experimentation on black people mm-hmm. so like i'm thinking like the tuskegee syphilis experiments um and then i'm also thinking of gynecology like the the father of gynecology exper- experimented on uh enslaved black women uh without anesthetic and then once he made his discoveries went on to perform those procedures on consenting white women uh, with anesthetic. Mm-hmm. And everything about like, even when, when you go to the gynecologist like in 2021 today, the stirrups, the table um, where you're on the edge of the table, all of it is designed to keep you as a patient uh, not subservient, but like in a vulnerable position compared to the doctor. And it's exacerbating the power dynamics that exist. There are other ways to do gynecology, um, but the particular way that we in Western medicine go about it has this deep racist history. So it's pervasive and also uh, like works against darker skinned people of color because of racial bias, I guess, despite those uh, discoveries being made at our expense. Which is, again, like 
deeply upsetting. <laughs> yeah. It's horrifying. Um, yeah. Yeah, I didn't actually know that about the um the gynecology exams and like as you say I'm like, "Oh yeah, like I find them kind of traumatic to go through. I'm like, I never want to do yes. them. They're so uncomfortable. And then I'm like, oh yeah, they, there is a weird power dynamic in that position. Like, yeah. and then you say that, I'm like, oh, that's, I mean, yeah, horrible. And there's other, there's other ways to do it. And this is just the way we do it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Let that one sink in for a minute. Um, <laughs> um, on the on the other end of things, have you had to have much um, much interaction with the insurance insurance companies? I've been really lucky. Um, my mom has really good insurance. So until I was twenty six, I was on her insurance. Then I was on school insurance, which was decent. And uh, now I'm on my husband's insurance, which is quite good. So I've been very lucky in terms of coverage and I haven't really needed to um, fight with insurance companies. Um, what's your ex experience with insurance companies like? Horrendous. It's been miserable. It's been oh overtly racist. It's been harmful. It's been absolutely counterproductive. Um, it makes me fear for you know we're talking about how already our universe our version of a universal healthcare system is deeply lacking um it makes me fear for um how the government seems to be pushing further towards a privatized system yeah i mean i feel like i doing an episode on the complexities of the insurance industry and how sinister it is uh, should have its own entire episode because it's so complex and convoluted. And until you've had to navigate it, I don't, it's hard to like understand, but the emotional manipulation I've been put through the fact that I have been uh, surveilled eight times for injuries I have because all of my injuries from a motor vehicle accident are unseen. So um, I was in a motor vehicle accident in 2014 and I had a concussion that was un went undiagnosed for two years. Um, and so in that time, I was doing tons of damage to my brain unknowingly because it was not caught and it kept being um, brushed aside as depression instead of what it was. And there was a tons of, there were tons of like race implications as well. Like at the time, like at the actual site of the accident, um, I was having a trauma response of fear of the cops. And so I went into flight mode where I was trying to get away from the situation. The person who hit my vehicle and totaled my car. Um, my car was four years old and it was deemed a complete and total write-off. So in terms of insurance industry standards, that is a huge loss for your car to be deemed that new of a vehicle to be given like 
the maximum payout it could get. Yeah. And I was, I was fully stopped at a red light and it was completely totaled. The man who hit me threatened that if I called the cops, I would be charged because, um, so my car was pushed into the car in front of me. So I drove standard at the time. So I was in neutral just because, you know, it's kind of, I find it exhausting or I found it exhausting to be on like having both feet engaged while stopped and it was a long light. So I was like, I'm chilling. So I had just my foot on the brake and I was in neutral. So the force that the person hit me pushed my car into the car in front of me and my car was deemed a complete and total write-off. Um, and that man when I, and I was delirious, like I should not have been allowed to make any kind of call. And I, and also, so this happened in Hamilton and Ham, the Hamilton police department is coming under all kinds of fire for how racist they are. So it makes me question whose intent, who, um, whose best interest the police had at that time, me or the white man. Yeah. Um, because who was allowing me to make any kind of decision at that time, like looking at the pictures of my vehicle, I'm like, who was letting this young woman in her right, like make any kind of call. So my, um, my instinct at that time was fear of the cop and I, uh, the cops and all I wanted to do was get away from that. So right from the start, I wasn't making any judgment sane calls I was like I get me out of here I refused to go to the hospital I was like just take me home get me out of here and because I signed a paper saying I refuse to go to the hospital they're use they use that against me to say I didn't have a concussion and they say wow. use that against me for years wow. years and so as I would be, and I kept getting sent to these assessments where they would just call me a liar for the things that I was experiencing, telling me it was just soft tissue damage, which I'm like, I'm, excuse me, your brain is just soft tissue. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure the brain controls the function for the entire body. Um, and if that's not functioning, I don't know what kind of quality of life you think a person's having. Um, and then through all these assessments I would be sent to, to try and prove that I was a liar, that would just keep coming back to prove that I was in fact not lying. I would, uh, um, they would actually find that I was in fact worse than I was saying I was. So wow. not only would they send me to assessments, but they would come back being like, oh no, there's actually even more wrong with this person's body than they're complaining about. And um there's like these tests you can do to see like these like pain threshold tests and um a faker scale and it was actually I was proven to be a person who underreported pain and who uh in fact didn't and I'm like right because as a black person you're constantly in a position where if you complain and you like you you just as a black woman you shut up <laughs> yeah you're taught to doubt yourself and discount your own pain. Yes. And so for years, like for the last, like almost seven years of my life, I got almost convinced myself that maybe I am the loony one, even though like in, in, and again, through these assessments, I found out that I actually, not only was there a concussion that went undiagnosed and that caused like severe damage to my brain and eyes that 
then I was told that I would never return to academia or full-time employment because of it. I also found out that I had two spinal cord injuries. Um, to that one called facet joint syndrome and osteoarthritis in my spine, which are both degenerative bone diseases um, right. in the spine that are contributing to daily headaches that are going to be there for the rest of my life. And this all happened at the ripe age of 21. Um, and so my mental health just declined pain. Like I have chronic pain, chronic, I have PTSD, anxiety, depression, like you name it. And I was like, who thinks that a 21 year old, like a 20 year old wants to live their life like this. And they thought it was appropriate to surveil me eight times. Wow. However, and so this is in the insurance system, the people that I paid money to for years for when I'm in an accident to claim that. And all I was doing was saying, hey, I need some help getting my life back together. That that's the system that we've got here in Canada, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, the thing I kept hearing from all the people in my concussion group is that once you get deemed catastrophically impaired, it's a breeze. You don't have to deal with anything anymore. You have access to all the benefits in the world. All the people who kept telling me that happened to be white. White. Mm -hmm. And then the second I got deemed catastrophically impaired is when they started putting the screws to me and making my life miserable to the point where I was ready to either... Uh, I was, I felt like my two choices were to enter sex work or to kill myself. That is the situation the insurance company had me in. When I did the, when I asked for help to get my life back together after an accident, a car collision, while I was stopped at a red light. That's so horrible and unfair and really exposes uh, who gets left out mm-hmm. in our so-called universal healthcare system. And in my observation of the concussion group I was in, it was just, um, you know, the stories of the people who were getting surveilled, who were stressed all the time, who were getting their benefits cut off as they're making progress happened to be the people of color. And the ones who were talking about how easy it was were all the white. And that was not lost on me. So that's, that's the system we are going further towards. Um, when I say I despise the insurance industry who fight you so hard to nickel and dime you and who purposely crush, try to crush you, who purposely send you to harmful assessments who purposely try tactics that demoralize you in an effort to get you to just quit so that they save their company money when these are the most vulnerable people who were in an accident and need help recovering and our healthcare system is so overburdened that we just don't have the capacity to give all these people what they actually need to recover as quickly as possible and therefore choose to use the system that we by law have to pay into because you legally can't drive a car without paying insurance because our legislators decided that who's in bed with who here is what I gotta say that's my insurance spiel I don't like it I don't like it I don't blame you that's a horrible experience yeah if I didn't need a car if our 
public transit system was better. If we didn't have a mayor who, if we had a mayor who actually cared about putting money into an effective system, I would guarantee, I guarantee you, I would not care about having a car because I do not want to pay into this horrendous system. Yeah. (laughs) Here is, we are where we are. So with all of that said, what do you like? Because I don't really know that there's anything that people, because this is more of a systemic problem, but what would you like for people to take away from this uh, as they hear this? Like for the allies, like what would you like them to hear and how would you like them to incorporate this information into their lives? I would say checking in with their friends who are people of color, who are chronically ill, consistently in contact with healthcare systems and insurance providers, um, because it can be a very traumatic experience. And um, offering support can help. And even just listening and holding space and believing what your friends of color tell you about their experiences with chronic illness Mm -hmm. and with racism in healthcare, if it's allowed slash safe to do so, offering a ride to a doctor's appointment, uh, offering to be like a buddy, because it can be really helpful even just having Mm. someone in the waiting room um, to support you. Uh, Those are my suggestions for allies. For BIPOC listeners, get copies of your test results if you can. Keep a copy of everything. Um, In Ontario, you can get copies of your blood test results sent straight to you. Um, For certain hospitals, you can get the reports um, that they write up at the end of your visit sent straight to you. Um, So keep really stringent records of your visits and your medications and tests that you've done and results. Because uh, unfortunately, the system is not designed to believe us, care for us. So we want to keep those receipts if we can Mm -hmm. um, while we're working within a system where the odds are stacked against us. Yeah. And uh, also know that whether it's just an appointment or you have to go to any kind of medical assessment, whether it's for the legal or insurance system, you actually have a right to have a chaperone of your choosing in the room. Doesn't the insurance company can fight you for it. Anyone can fight you for it. However, this is something that people do not know. It is in the uh, physicians and surgeons guidelines um, that the uh, assessee has a right to bring their own chaperone that is your yeah yeah that is your right so absolutely and if anyone tries to fight you on it that like when it comes right down to the legalities of it you will ultimately win that fight and it might be more stressful down the road however that is your right to do that um and that's something i want people to know that you have that absolutely have that right um I also think that uh, a big thing for allies to do is 
consider like when it comes time to vote like get out there and vote including in your municipal elections like you don't think about it but municipal elections like local elections actually have such an impact by definition it's what's closest to you it's your Mm -hmm. immediate community so it's gonna significantly impact your life yeah and when you vote don't just think about yourself like think about your community um they say like when it comes down to like why um campaigns target black women so hard is because black women when they vote they don't just think of themselves when they vote they actually vote for their communities um so i would encourage everyone to try voting as like a black woman would everyone try try that strategy so whoever you are doesn't matter who you are try uh, thinking employing that mentality um don't just think of yourself when you vote um not voting is also a luxury because it impacts legislation impacts the BIPOC community because uh, voting in people who continue to put things into legislation that allow insurance companies the power to terrorize people who make a claim when they've been hurt that affects us and you may not realize it even if you make a claim and you're like wow I had such a great experience with my insurance company and it's not just motor vehicle it's also healthcare. it can be like work insurance like all insurance companies they're 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 all the devil um (laughs) but legislation matters so when you vote like remember that like remember think of who you're voting for and what impact that could have down the line um I think that's my biggest or what I would like people to take away from this is that it matters that's good advice yeah um Amanda thank you so so much for joining me today and for sharing thank you for having me yeah yeah thank you for sharing your story um this is a big heavy topic um really important topic obviously one that's very close to my heart so thank you so much for sharing um anything anything you'd like to plug before we we sign off yeah follow me on instagram i'm amanda glowgetter on there um yeah i think that's it yeah (laughs) all right everyone that's been another episode of beyond black y'all know what to do let's get out there and let's do some work Peace. For more content and to stay in touch, follow us at Beyond Black Pod on Instagram or email us at beyondblackpod at gmail.com. Beyond Black is created, hosted, and written by Emma Mitchell and produced by Jacob Mitchell. Intro and outro themes were mixed by Jacob Mitchell with outro music provided by Butter Music and Sound. Please rate, review, subscribe, share us with a friend, and let's do some work.